open up in Romans 12 and if you would bow your heads with me and let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening. We have this opportunity to open up the Word of God and see what you have to say. And Lord, this chapter, there is so much uh, practical advice that can be applied to any and every day in our Christian life. I pray you might speak to our hearts tonight. And not just Bible school students, Lord. I, I hope that our church is using this for something greater than just that, that we have people tuning in tonight just wanting to learn more, wanting to have more of the Bible today, spend more time around you. So, Father, please help all of us, wherever we're at tonight, guide us into truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 12. Let me give you the outline for this chapter. If I had to give it a title, I would, and this is very broad, but I believe the chapter is meant to be very broad. The acceptable Christian attitude towards life. That's, I know that's very broad, but I think that's what Paul's going to be giving us in chapters 12, 13, and 14. As he has done throughout the book of Romans, Paul is looking at this book through a very broad lens. And he is covering a multitude of subjects, big subjects, right? And he's doing it succinctly. He's, he's compacting these big truths into small chapters. And each verse is packed and loaded with something that could, we could, right, take time in each verse to unpack it. You could easily spend uh, a month going through this verse, right? Just going verse by verse and getting something. We're, of course, not going to take that much time for it. But I do suggest that as, as you find the time, that you would slow down and really chew on everything that this chapter has, has to offer. So the acceptable Christian attitude towards life. And then I believe the chapter breaks down into four parts. Part number one is actually verse number one, and that is acceptable service. Acceptable service. Now each one of these things is going to be acceptable something. So verse one, acceptable service. Verse two, acceptable structure. And as we'll talk about there, the, the framework for how we approach life, our worldview, basically. Uh, part three, the supply of each member, the acceptable supply that comes from each member. Now, of course, we're talking about the members of the body of Christ. That's verses three to eight, three to eight. And then verses nine to 21, which is the end of the chapter, acceptable standards. And there are, there's a long list of things that Paul gives us, various virtues uh, that should be present in every Christian life. All right, so let's jump into verse 1. He says here, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So this is the acceptable service that, that Paul says God can, he does expect from us. He beseeches us, he begs us. Guys, let me plead with you to do this. Based on what? Because Paul was a great guy and we owe him a favor? Well, obviously not. He beseeches them by the mercies of God. Now notice the plural there. I find that interesting. Not just mercy, but mercies, the mercies of God. We read in Lamentations, the mercies of, of God, they're new every morning multiplied mercies. It's not just that God one time had mercy on us when He saved us and adopted us into His family. 
but each and every day we can recognize God's loving kindness and mercy in our lives. So based on the fact that God has been so good to you, better to you than you deserve, based on that, Paul pleads with us and says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now this seems a bit ironic. A living sacrifice. It almost sounds like a bit of a contradiction in and of itself. Because when we think of sacrifice, especially coming from a Jewish background, Paul's background, and the Bible having such a Jewish flavor to it, with the Old Testament especially, a sacrifice is something you put on the altar and it dies. So to be a living sacrifice, you are losing your life. Right? That's a sacrifice. You're giving something up. But in, in our case, it's unique in that the sacrifice we make is we say, not my will, but thine be done. And our sacrifice is to say, God, here I am, a willing vessel, and I want to do, I want to do, I want to be active. I want there to be action in my submission to you. I'm not just going to say, God, use me, and then sit there like the proverbial bump on a log. But God, here I am, send me. That's a living sacrifice. Now, why does he say this is your reasonable service? Because Jesus, as the sacrifice that God gave on our behalf, he rose from the dead. See, there was action to it. He didn't just lay his life down and it ended there. He laid it down, then he took it up again, and he is alive evermore. The same for us. We have been baptized, spiritually, mind you, into Christ's death, that we should walk in newness of life. So let me remind you, Romans 6 verse 11, I think is a great verse for this uh, as a cross-reference. It says there, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see that alive unto God? When we lay our lives down on that altar of service each and every day, right? We renew ourselves in that way. We are saying no to the affections and lusts that reside in our flesh. And we are saying, yes, I'm going to live unto God. I will yield my members, servants, uh, unto righteousness. So because Jesus is a living Savior, it just makes sense that we also offer up a living sacrifice. The sacrifice God gave for us is alive. So, the sacrifice we give back should also be alive. Notice also how Paul puts the word holy into that. The, the sacrifice we give is holy. So, if you go to God and say, God, here I am, use me, but the vessel that you are presenting to Him is not a sanctified vessel, then it is not a vessel meet for the Master's use. Now, I'd like for you later on, you can check this in 2 Timothy 2, Verses 19, 20, 21, 22, right down in there. It speaks to the great importance of a sanctified vessel. That is your reasonable service. After all He's done for you, Jesus was a holy sacrifice. He rose from the dead. We should live unto God. Verse 2, And be not conformed to this world. Now we're going to speak about some structure, an acceptable structure that should exist in our lives. Now, when I say structure, I'm talking about our frame, framework, scaffolding, structure, 
our worldview. How do we position ourselves in relation to the world, in society? Be not conformed to this world. Paul says, be careful. Don't try to fit in with them. That's not our end goal. That's not acceptable to God. He says, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, please, if you would, take your Bibles. I'd I want to show you two verses on this. Get 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. And in your other hand, get Colossians chapter 3. I'd like to show you Colossians 3, first of all. So Colossians 3 verse 10. I want to give you a couple verses about the renewing of your mind. <clears throat> Colossians 3 verse 10. Paul says here, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So this new man, right? we know from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, the inward man is renewed day by day. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. So daily there's this crucifixion of the flesh and a yielding to God, that living sacrifice, saying, God, here I am, use me. And every day, every day, we are renewing our minds. We have to, let's say, remind ourselves of the commitment that we've made. And daily, we are... We are renewed by the knowledge of God. It says renewed in verse 10, renewed in knowledge after the image of him, of him that created him. So this image, the image of God's dear Son that now resides inside of me, as I say no to the flesh and yes to the Holy Spirit, what I'm saying is I want to know more about Jesus so I can become more like Jesus. This is how we are not conformed to the world, but we are conformed to the image of Christ. We have to deepen our knowledge of Him on a daily basis. And you say, Brother Mike, I've read the Bible, I've read other books, I'm sitting in Bible school, I go to church, I'm, I'm learning all I can. There's only, I can only learn at a certain pace. But he, this is something that the, the knowledge I'm talking about here is not book knowledge necessarily. You need that. You should be familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You should know the life of Christ. You should understand His nature, the way He thought, the way He spoke to people, why He did what He did. All of that should be very familiar to you. But there's one thing that you can learn about Christ, and it's going to take time. It's going to take a daily renewal, a daily commitment and that is you have to experience things with Him. Just like any relationship, each day you go through things together, you do things together. And in so doing, you learn a little bit more and a little bit more about that person. Same thing with God. Every day as you commune with Him, talk with Him, watch Him work in your life, you're learning more and more about Him. Uh, take your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. This is your attendance code, by the way. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Very important verse. He says here, casting down imaginations. And what are imaginations? It's the way you think. It's the way you imagine things to be. It's the assumptions you have 
about life, about God. He says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. So there are things we get stuck in our head. We think God is this way. And he says, the spiritual battle we're in requires that you cast down those false concepts of God, those imagined attributes of God, and get the true image, the true knowledge of God stuck in your mind. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Being willing to change your mind, to stop thinking the way the world has conditioned you to think, and rather accept and believe what God has told you about Himself. And unfortunately, and I believe you'll know this is true through personal experience, most folks, what they know about God is what society tells them about God. But they don't know Him through a personal experience. Again, that's, that goes beyond, that transcends just a Bible education. Although that is incredibly important, it requires a daily application of your Bible education. So, come back to Romans 12. Let's continue on in verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conformed, that suffix con, C-O-N, it, it means with. In the Spanish language, that con is the word for with, with something, conformed. So you're getting together with the world. Transformed is when you go from one area, like transport, you, you take it from one port to another port, you transport it, you move it to another place. It's different. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, when we are conformed to the image of Christ, we are becoming one with Him. We're getting together with Him. There's a togetherness. Transformed be different than the world. Now, I, I caution you, make sure you get the order of this correct. Some preachers, they put it across like this, you know. They lick their finger, put it up in the air, and, and I've heard them say this. They say, if you want to know how to live, lick your finger, put it up in the air, and the, the wind of the world, whichever direction the wind of the world is blowing, just turn around and go the opposite direction. Well, I would, I would say about... 95% of the time, that's going to work. That advice will work out. But the problem with that is the world then becomes your standard. You're just going to do whatever's opposite. It makes you a very ornery, a very difficult, froward person to deal with. You're against everything simply because that's your nature. You're just against it. Rather, say, let me follow the Holy Spirit. Now, as it turns out, yeah, most, most of the time you're going to be walking in the opposite direction. Very rarely do you find society moving in the direction that God would have it move. But make sure that you're taking your cues, right? that you're, that you're waiting um, to make any movement or decisions based on God moving in your life. Don't, don't base it on the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in this verse, you have the will of God explicitly mentioned, but then there is another will that is implicitly mentioned. It's implied in the verse, and that is the will of the world. You can think of it this way. There's the way God wants you to do it. There's the way the world wants you to do it. Every day you have to choose. 
Every day you need to know how to prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. How can I find out what God wants me to do in any given situation? First of all, you need to know the general will of God. That is, know what the plan of God is for today. Overall, what's the what, if I look at it in the broad sense, what is God trying to accomplish? The broader goal, the long-term goal, conforming me to His image, ministering to other people based on how Christ has ministered to me, those concepts. Now that will narrow things down for me. That'll help me make a lot of decisions to know the overall plan. That is why over and over again in all of Paul's epistles, almost every one of them, he spends a decent amount of time emphasizing that we understand the will of God. And when he's talking about that, he wants us to know this, this mystery that's been revealed for the body of Christ. He wants us to know this predestined plan and everything that God desires to accomplish in us before and even after the rapture. That way, once we know that overall plan, it helps us fit into that plan all the smaller decisions we need to make. So you need to know the general will of God and then that will help you test or prove or decide on the specific things daily that you deal with. Decisions such as who will I marry, where will I work, uh, where should I live, how should I use my money, all of that stuff. If you know that general will of God, the specifics get easier to test and examine and prove. Now, furthermore, you're going to need to have a prayer life. You're going to need to know how to commune with God, how to hear from Him. You're going to need to know how to turn to certain places in the Bible to get guidance. The Bible is a living book, and therefore it can speak to your situation directly. You need to know how that operates. And that takes time. At Hebrews 5 verse 14, it says it takes exercise. You need to be exercised in the Word. Have your senses exercised to discern good and evil. That's what it says. And it's the same idea of proving what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, if I can quickly just mention, at the end of verse 2, I've heard people deal with this verse in two different ways. Uh, the end part of it. They say that there are three levels to the will of God. There's good, there's acceptable, and then there's perfect. So you can think of a bronze, silver, and a gold medal. Bronze medal, you did something that's good. right? It's not acceptable. You won't get rewarded for it at the judgment seat of Christ, but what you did wasn't bad. It was, it was a good thing, but it had nothing to do with Christ. The silver medal is you did something acceptable. God looks at it and says, I have nothing against what you did. It does fit into the overall plan. It, does, it didn't do any damage to the testimony of, of Christ. However, it's not something that I directly commanded you to do. You didn't do every aspect of it the way I would have had you do it, but I accept what you did. Silver medal. Gold medal. Perfect will. Complete. It fits the general wills. It is specifically what God led you to do. You did it with the right attitude. You see every part of it God looks down in and smiles and very happy with. So I can appreciate those three levels. I, I think there is truth in that explanation. I don't think, however that that is what Paul was intending when he wrote this. So I think this is one of those times we could say that makes good preaching, but not necessarily good teaching, at least by my estimation. It's not what was intended. I believe the will of God has three adjectives in the verse. The will of God is good, it is acceptable, 
and it is perfect. If you're doing it according to the will of God, that means you have done as much as you can. It, it is a complete thing that you've done. But it, of course, the qualifier there is you had to have done that thing according to God's will, the way He wanted you to do it. All right, so verse 3. Paul says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Let me just mention quickly. Notice the authority by which Paul is saying this. He says, I'm, I'm speaking to every man that is among you. Why? Through the grace given unto me. Where, where did this authority come from? This authority to say what he's about to say and explain all this, it was given to Paul. Paul did not take this authority for himself. He did not make it up. He's not boasting of himself to say, listen, I have this great philosophy. I've thought it through. I've figured it out. Paul recognizes that the intelligence, the wisdom, the knowledge, the plan, everything that he's explaining was given to him. And it was given to him by grace. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He was a persecutor, a blasphemer. Paul makes it clear in many places that of all the people, he's the least of all saints, he says. So he recognizes that although he doesn't deserve this position, he's able to say these things because of what God has done in his life. So he says, I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So it works with what I've just said. Don't think that you figured it all out. That any success you've had in the ministry or in, or in life, for that matter, it's, it's fine to say, listen, I worked hard. I labored more abundantly. Paul said things like that. It's, it's completely fine to acknowledge the truth of your situation. But if you really are honest about it, right, don't heap credit where credit is not due. You can't say that you and you alone figured it all out. You, you have to be able to recognize the hand of God in what you've done. He says at the end of it, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. <clears throat> to think soberly is to think about the thing properly. Don't get carried away. Now, within the context, if you just took verse 3, a man cannot look at himself and say, I'm self-made. Everything I have, I have because of me. Uh, God had nothing to do with it. That's not the case. God obviously, by grace, allowed you to be involved in certain things and have certain opportunities. But in the, in the greater context, verse 4 and 5 and on down, we also see the body of Christ come into this. You, by yourself, you're not going to make it. Uh, you're not going to be able to become everything you need to be without the help of all the other members of the body of Christ. And it's okay to admit that. Don't let... A, a pride or an arrogance step into it to say, I don't want to be a burden or a bother to anybody. You know, let me just figure out all the problems in my life. Let me just work out everything and make myself right. I just want to help other people. But then you don't accept help. That's part of thinking soberly. You have to recognize, okay, God has given me this measure of faith. Faith, by the way, is God revealing something to you. You might think of it as, as God telling you something. God saying, this is how it is. That's God giving you a measure of faith when He reveals things to you. That is done 
by the way, it starts with the Bible being revealed to you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. But then as time goes on, God can reveal specific things to you. We'll talk more about, more about that in a moment. But you have to take into account God has given me one measure or a measure of faith. He's shown me this much, X amount. But that, that amount that He's given me, that's not all there is to know. My brother, my sister in the church, God maybe has shown things to them, taught them some things that can minister to me, and I need them. I cannot go, go at the Christian life alone. I can't go it alone. I've got to have help. So think soberly. Don't think that you can bear this burden alone. God didn't build us to do that. If you need help, accept help. In verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. Now he's using the human body as an illustration. 1 Corinthians 12 is a great cross-reference to this concept here because in that chapter Paul talks about the human body, the eye, the foot, the hand, the, the ear, and all of that. Now each part functions differently, but it, it serves the whole. Same idea here. All members have not the same office, so each body part doesn't do the same thing. Verse 5, so we being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. So the hand, right, my hand and my foot are not directly connected, but they are members of the same body. All of the body parts put together serve a singular purpose, and that is to make up Mike Flick, right? And they all work towards the greater good of Mike Flick as a human body. Now, as the body of Christ, we're all working towards the greater good of Jesus Christ. Each member has that singular goal. And that brings us back to the renewing of your mind. You have to know the goal is not to make you the best you you can be. The goal is to conform you to the image of Christ and every other member also conforming to that same image. And if we all stay focused on that, it will help us to use whatever measure of faith God gives us, whatever talents, whatever gifts and abilities we have, we know how to use them. He has pointed us in the right direction. So verse 6, he says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Now I have a few things underlined in my Bible. You, you don't have to underline them. Let me tell you what I have denoted, however. Verse 3 at the beginning, Grace given unto me. At the end of verse 3, Measure of faith. Now I see these as almost synonymous. I think he's, it's almost the same thing. Verse 6, the grace given to us. At the end of the verse, proportion of faith. So when Paul talks about God giving us grace, the grace given to us, we're also talking about the measure or the portion, the proportion of faith that he's given us. God has revealed a certain amount to you. Now, what has He revealed? We all have access to the Bible. So the knowledge, that general knowledge of God's predestined plan for the body of Christ, we should all know that. We should all be clued into that. But then God also reveals some specific, specific things to you and says, now that you know the overall plan and what the goal is, here are some ways in which you can use your knowledge to minister to other people. Here are some ways you can take those talents and gifts 
abilities that you have and use them to minister to others for Christ's sake. So, maybe God will speak to your heart individually and say, I'm calling you to preach. Say, what's that? That's the prophecy. Prophesying is another way of talking about preaching, especially in the New Testament. It it does work like that in the Old Testament as well. If you look up the word prophecy in, in a dictionary, it'll say the foretelling of the future, which is true. That is one of its definitions. Don't deny that. And very often in the Bible, prophecy works together with telling the future. I don't struggle with that interpretation of it, that understanding of it. However, there is a broader application of prophecy in the Bible. And on other occasions, I've shown all these verses, so I'm not going to run you through them again just now. But another proper definition for prophecy is forth-telling of the Word of God. So you'll find this phrase common to all the prophets, Thus saith the Lord. When somebody stands up to prophesy, they preface that by saying, Thus saith the Lord, and here comes the Word of God. So when, when I stand up to preach, right, and I am telling people what God said, I'm preaching from the Bible, I'm prophesying. Thus saith the Lord, and then I give them the Word of the Lord. Now, what should you preach about? Preach about what God's revealed to you. That needs to line up with everything else that God has revealed. That's why we have the Bible as our standard, as our final authority. It's one of the several reasons God has preserved the Bible until this generation, and He will forever, so that we can measure what we're saying against what God has revealed through other prophets and through His Son and through the apostles in in history. So if God has called you to preach, then preach. How much can I preach? Preach as much as God has revealed to you. As time goes on, by the grace of God, He will show you more and more. So if I can drop a word of advice to younger preachers, don't preach beyond your years. Don't preach about things you don't know yet. I I appreciate sometimes you do have to mention things that you haven't experienced. When you mention it, for instance, myself, right? There are certain things, certain tragedies that I've never experienced, and I, I even hesitate to speak of them because I don't want to ever deal with some of the tragedies that, that I know go on all over the world every day. I know what the Bible says about them. I know the right thing to say, but when I meet those situations, I tread lightly, and I'm, I try to be honest and say, listen, I, I've never been in that position, so... I can only say so much, right? But I'm not going to preach beyond what God has shown me and revealed to me. So I'm going to prophesy or preach according to the proportion of faith to what He's shown me. Verse 7, or ministry. Let us wait on our ministering. Very broad category. But these are various gifts, as you've seen in verse 6. These are talents or abilities that God uh, gives to people. Some people are better at being servants than others. They call it having a servant's heart. Right? They are excellent at taking orders and getting things done. Now, organizing things and coming up with a plan for every, that may not be their strong suit, but if you give them a task, they know how to get it done. They've been called maybe to minister. 
Now, maybe God has revealed to you a specific area in which you can minister, right? So you look at your resources, you look at the time you have, you look at the knowledge, the opportunities, the open doors, the connections, and then you pray and say, God, I have all these things going on in my life. How would you like for me to use them? And then God points you in a specific direction and says, that's where you can help. That's where you can minister. That's where you can serve. Go do that. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministry. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Right, the gift of teaching. This requires, by the way, this will line up nicely with 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul gives a, a different list of, of spiritual gifts. But over there he talks about uh, one has the word of wisdom, one the word of knowledge, and so forth. If you're going to be a teacher, you need to have that word of knowledge. God has to give you a, an ability to learn, to assimilate information. Read books, listen to sermons, podcasts, lessons, whatever, whatever format you receive information in. To be able to take that in and then to properly and easily communicate it to other people. Not everybody has that gift. Some people can learn, but then they struggle Right? They, they understand the information, but then they struggle to explain it to the next person. Now, obviously, until you thoroughly know something, it's always difficult to explain. So if you're going to be a teacher, you need to know how to apply yourself and think about all the angles. Don't just know it from your worldview. Know it from a different position. Why do people disagree with this? And there are lots of aspects to teaching. But if God's called you to that and you have that ability, then... Be mindful to use what God has put in you. Not everybody has that. Verse 8, Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. The exhortation, you'll find this, and there's some other verses where Paul or other people mention prophesying or preaching. An exhortation is one of the things that happens uh, when somebody's preaching. So exhortation, I think of this as stirring up uh, the people. They, they know what to do, and now you need to encourage them or put a little fire under them to go and get it done. You can also think of exhortation in, in certain contexts. It's used in a way to say comfort people. But these are all uh, specific aspects of preaching. But some people, right, you can exhort people without being a preacher. You are the encourager. You know that somebody else has a big task to do, and I hesitate to use the word cheerleader, right? Because th that comes with some bad connotations. But, but, I think it might be appropriate in this to illustrate it, right? You're there to say, come on, man, don't give up. You got what you need. God's going to help you. God's going to use you. Get up and get it done. He that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. All right? The gift of giving. Now, you know, people... Oftentimes, in, in certain churches, they put a lot of emphasis on spiritual gifts. You know, come to the altar and pray for this gift, or has God shown you what your gifts are, and so forth. You know, if you know the overall goal of the body of Christ, that is to, to help sinners be reconciled to God so they can be conformed to the image of His Son. If you know that, and you're busy trying to accomplish that greater goal, you don't need to focus on, which gift do I have? You just go out and do the most you can with whatever gifts you have, with whatever amount of faith you've been given, right? Okay, maybe I can't preach 
as good as the next guy. I'll preach as good as I can. Maybe I can't minister as good as the next guy, but I'll minister the best I can. I'll use whatever God's given me to help people. Right? So I know the greater goal. So you don't have to sit there and examine and look for every gift to make sure you tick every box on that. That's, that's not how the gifts work. But when people go down, you know, and pray them for gifts and God, you know, they, they want to see the miraculous. They want to see something impressive. They want something to write home about, as they say. I've never heard anyone pray for the gift of giving. Now, maybe they have, but I've never heard anyone pray for it. Uh, not everybody's good at it. Some people, when they give, it comes with a catch. I'll give, but I expect, you know, later on, you help me out. I'm giving, but there's some hooks in it. Paul says, if you're going to give, let's just do it with simplicity. Don't make any uh, conditions for it. Just give because you want to help. Thank God we got a church full of people that really do have this figured out. By the way, if I can say this before I move on, if you're going to have the gift of giving, there's a very good chance that God is going to enable you, gift you with the ability to make money, right? How are you going to give if you don't have anything? <laughs> now, I know you can be a generous person and not have a lot. I understand that. But most of the time, right? If you're going to be a consistent giver, you have to be consistently making money. Now, what if you approached it like that? God, please help me to be a good businessman. Why? So that I can... I want to be... My place in the body of Christ, the function that I can fulfill is to be the giver. And do it with simplicity. I, you know, there's so many times people have come and said, uh, Pastor, I just want to help out in this or this cause. Please don't tell them that I am the one who gave. I like that. That's simple, man. That's simple. One time in Malawi, I went to a, a wedding reception, and uh, I had performed the ceremony. And I went to the reception afterwards, and it was just me and Christina in the building. We were the only two white folk in the building. Everybody else, of course, is Malawian. And I had never been to a Malawian reception, so I didn't really know what to expect. It's my first one. They told me, bring money. Bring money. So I did. I brought money, but they didn't tell me to bring small bills. Whew, what a regret. We got to the building and the newlyweds were sitting up in front on kind of like two thrones, basically, two very big, nice chairs. The music started and then somebody, you know, got up, the, the MC got up and explained what was happening. Yeah, now it is time to give. Eh, eh, and the music started. Eh, eh. And the guy pointed at me and said, eh, now. The Mbusa, the pastor, he's going to show us how to give. And he, they had clued me into this, at least as I was coming into the building, that when the music starts, you have to dance up the aisle and then take your money and throw it down at the newlyweds' feet. Well, that's fine. That's their custom. Help yourself. So I didn't have... I thought this was a once-off thing. So all I had was the big bills, the biggest denomination of bill that Malawi had at the time. I went up and I threw a few of those down at their feet. And then the MC got back up and said, Ah, yeah, now the pastor, he has started off well, but ah, we're not done yet. Come, come, show us again. We need to learn. I was like, oh, man, I see what's going on. So up I danced again and I threw more money down. I'm about to run out of money because I only brought the big bills. I didn't have small bills. Then the MC, after, I don't know, two, three, four times of this, the MC calls me over to the mic and he says, Yeah, Pastor, before we start, you need to tell us, teach us, what, what does the Bible say about giving? 
And I probably shouldn't have done it, but I must admit, I, I was feeling a bit uh, abused by that point. I took the mic and I said, the Bible says, let him that giveth do it with simplicity. <laughs> and I said, this is not very simple. <laughs> I handed him the mic and went and sat down. That, that's not the right way to handle a wedding reception, right? But it really caught me off guard. Um, yeah, so if you're going to give, maybe just don't sing and dance while you do it, right? Just, just give and be done with it. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. Ruling, that's, one, that's a gift. Some people don't have the ability to lead, and that's okay. Know your limits. What is that? What do I mean by that? Know the measure of faith that God's given you. Maybe God has not revealed to you. He hasn't taught you how to lead. Uh, some of these things, right, you'll learn over time. The, your measure of faith, your portion of faith will grow with experience, with learning. And maybe now you're fit for ministering. You can serve, but ruling may not be your thing. But ruling, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12... In verse number 28, Paul wrote, And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, that's your ministering, governments, diversities of tongues. So people can speak different languages and they're able to reach different people groups. But notice the word governments. Governments. That's in the list of offices that God has built into the church. So in Romans 12, verse 4, you see not all have the same office. Right? So governments. Some people are better suited to rule. You, they are going to be the leaders in the church. You can lean on them to organize events, to organize uh, the, the church service itself. You know, all, the, all the small details that go into a church service. Those those leaders that you lean on to keep things moving in the right direction. He says, he that ruleth with diligence. So this is somebody that's going to be responsible. If they are given a task and they have to oversee something, they're going to make sure that things get done the proper way. Right? Not everybody has that gift. But some of you do. And thank God, I appreciate that we have several, several people that have stepped up in that, in that way. At the end of the verse, verse 8, He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now that concludes this list of spiritual gifts. But obviously this is not every gift. This is not every ability that, some, that, that God has given people or that God could use towards the greater goal of helping people know, know Christ. But this one, he says, He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So this is, it's, a, it's a great ability to be able to show mercy mercy. Now, everybody should be able to do this to a certain extent. Some people are just better at it than others. But showing mercy, this is when somebody has messed up and they deserve a good hiding. You are able to deal patiently with them. You're able to encourage them. To, you're, able to, you're able to listen patiently as they talk about their own failures. And, and you listen cheerfully, and you help them, even though they put themselves in this mess. You know, some of us, we're built like, uh, we're built in such a way that if somebody's messed up, hey man, 
I'm sorry that you messed up and I'll help you try to get out of it, but I really don't have time to hear the whole story. And, and uh, we're, we're just not built to, 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 to listen to the sob story, you know, the pity party, all of that. Oh, we're not built for that. And then other people, they're so patient, so merciful in those situations. Now, everybody should try to grow in these gifts, all of them. Especially, I think, something like showing mercy with cheerfulness. Because that's what Christ does, yes. We're not putting Him out when He shows mercy. He's glad to get to do that. We should be glad for the opportunity to restore somebody, but we should do it with the spirit of meekness. Right? So we should all aim to grow in these abilities. Some people, however, they just have a special ability to take this person who's messed up, this person who is in you know, going through trouble and really help them out and doesn't bother them at all. I always think of Barnabas when I think of this gift because his nickname was the Son of Consolation. And Saul, who deserved a swift kick in the pants, right? After all he did to the church, Saul gets saved. You know, obviously later became Paul, but most of the brethren wanted nothing to do with Saul. They were scared of him or skeptical of him. Thought maybe this was all a big ruse, you know, big, big deception. Barnabas, the son of consolation, he showed mercy with cheerfulness and took Paul around various places and helped him get established when he needed to get out of town, helped him with that. So I think Barnabas is a good example of this. Verse 9, he says, and we move on now to, to another section. So, you know, if I can, can I ask you to flip over to a your time is gone. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. I mentioned in the outline uh, the acceptable supply that comes from each member. And you'll see the wording of Ephesians 4, 16, speaking about Christ and the body of Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So every, every part has something different to contribute. Every joint, every part supplies something different. So these are the acceptable, it's the acceptable supply of each member. Now, in the last part of the chapter, verses 9 down to 21, the acceptable standards for Christian living. And I mentioned at the beginning we could take an hour for each of these. You could preach full sermons on each one of these topics, but Paul is going to bounce from one thing to, it, to the other. Bear in mind, when he's writing to the Romans, he's not trying to address any specific problem going on in their church. He's just giving them the broad overview of what the plan is for practical, everyday living as a Christian. What does God consider acceptable? So here's the list of acceptable standards. Let love be without dissimulation. Don't fake it. If you're going to talk about loving somebody, follow through with it. Don't do it just in word, but in deed and in truth. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. To abhor it is to hate it with intensity. Whatever is evil. Now again, that's very broad, isn't it? But abhor it. Don't tolerate it. Abhor it. Cleave to that which is good. You find something that is proven to be good. Cleave to it. Hang on to it. 
Don't let anybody take it away or talk you out of it. Don't compromise on it. Verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Can I make it real simple? Be nice. Be nice. I know there are some Bible believers. I went to Bible school with them. said, nice is a bad word. Nice isn't in the Bible. And that's right. In the King James Bible, you don't find the word nice. But verse 10 describes somebody who's nice. But they go beyond nice. Kindly affectioned, that's being nice to someone. Kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Brotherly love goes a step beyond nice because being nice, that kind of implies this pleasant attitude, but then what about if they're not nice to you first? Brotherly love would dictate, I'm going to be nice to him anyway because he's my brother. And Christ... Right? Well, I'm to love my brother as Christ loved me. So I'm going to show my brother the kind of love he deserves. And the love he deserves is the love that Christ showed me. So that, that, it takes it a step beyond. As a Christian, there's a higher standard than just being society's version of nice. Being kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. It's the idea of, no, no, you first. That, that's preferring one another with honor. No, 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 please, you take it. Uh, you have it. You first. Now, be careful here because we could get stuck in an endless loop. No, no, you first. No, no, you first. No, no, you first. No, no, you first. And, and we end up getting nothing done. So there are at certain points where you have to be able to accept help. Right? Don't, don't be ashamed. Don't think you're being proud or being a burden to somebody because it's their turn to be a blessing to you. But in honor preferring one another... Uh, when we approach a situation, we shouldn't walk into the room thinking, now where's my honor? Where's, I, I want everybody to show me honor. We walk into the room preferring the other guy. How can I show you honor? How can I show you respect? Right. Now, if somebody shows it to you, don't be afraid to accept it. All right, verse 11, not slothful in business. Don't be lazy. So what does the Bible have to say about me going to work tomorrow morning? Don't be lazy. Work hard work hard. You don't need a long explanation, do you? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Be a good employee. Work hard. Not slothful in business. Fervent in spirit. Fervent. You often hear this word mentioned with heat. Fervent heat. Something that's burning hot. Fervent in spirit. So, fervent in spirit, you're excited about something. You're passionate about something. So, you're not just going to go through the motions as a believer, as a Christian, we are driven. We are motivated. We are impassioned. By what? Paul says, the love of Christ constraineth us. What drives me to do a good job, to work hard, to prefer one another, to be kind, to abhor that which is evil? The love of Christ constrains me. And His love is fervent, so therefore my spirit is also should be fervent. And at the end of the verse, serving the Lord. That's very broad, isn't it? But in anything that I do, I want to know how can I give God glory through this? How can I fulfill that greater will, that greater plan? Uh, verse 12, rejoicing in hope. You know, sometimes life's going to get you down, give you some difficult things to, to handle. And the only thing you can cling to are God's promises about the future. Now, that, that's, not, 
relegated only to the rapture, although that is our blessed hope and we do rejoice in that. But I hope, I have this expectation that God will fulfill all of His promises, even the ones that apply to my daily life. So if I'm going through a tough time, I can still find some reason to rejoice because God has promised me the necessary grace, comfort, wisdom to help me through that. So rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, not, listen, not panicked in tribulation. Don't panic, won't help. Patient in tribulation. This goes right back to Romans 5. And if you were in church this morning, if you listened to the live stream this morning, we talked about going to the house of mourning. So I'm not going to repeat all of the lessons we learned from troubles, but patient in tribulation so that it can have its perfect work. And then at the end of verse 12, great phrase, continuing instant in prayer. I cannot stress to you how important that is. Guys, listen. Prayer is not an ATM card. Let, let me say it again. Prayer is not an ATM card. You, when you go to prayer, people have it stuck in their heads that prayer is, is a means of getting something from God. That is, that is one very small aspect of prayer. Prayer is an ongoing conversation. It is communing with the Holy Ghost. Every situation, no matter what it is, you can say, Lord, what do you think about this? How do you want me to handle this? Are you happy with this? Are you smiling at this? Continuing instant in prayer. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints. Biblically speaking, we think of uh, what the Corinthians were doing for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Great illustration of that. Modern day, Leon. In our church, what he's doing, taking food packets and various groceries to to. He's doing it not only for individual families all over, but also taking it to churches and, allow, and giving it to their pastor so that they can distribute it amongst their members. Perfect illustration. Given to hospitality. Now, the way we use hospitality, even when we invite friends or relatives into our home, we open our homes to them, and that is hospitality. But the way that word is used in the Bible, it has to do with entertaining strangers. So this is helping people you don't know at all. Even, even if that includes, you need a place to stay for a little while, let me, let me help you out as much as I reasonably can. Right? I still have to provide for my own. I have to consider safety. The Bible never says you have to put your family in danger. But let me be aware of the fact that there are strangers around me that I can help. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 2 is a good verse that goes with this. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Verse 14, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. You see how this is very general advice. Paul's pulling out from every angle of life. This ties right into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 44. This is precisely the type of thing Jesus said. Somebody is persecute, persecuting and cursing you. Our response is not to retaliate with the same thing, but to bless. You hate me, well, I'm not going to hate you back. I'm going to pray for you. Verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Look at that. You can't do that alone, can you? Right? So I said earlier, nobody can go, at, can, can go through the Christian life alone. You've got to accept help and you've got to be ready to give it. Be the shoulder to cry on. Be the guy there to rejoice in somebody else's victory. 
It doesn't always have to be about your victory, right? Somebody else comes and says, hey, man, I overcame this. God helped me with that. I got a new job. My, wife, my wife's fallen pregnant. I'm happy for you. You shouldn't be, well, I don't have those things. And if, if they're rejoicing, man, praise God for that. They're hurting. Know how to show some compassion as well. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Uh, verse 16, be of the same mind one toward another. We all have the same goal. Oops, sorry, I hit the table. Um, we all have the same goal. I'm not going to look at one guy and say, well, he has an important job. That guy has a lot of money, so I'm going to treat him better. This guy over here, you know, he lives on the other side of the tracks, and he doesn't have a lot to monetarily offer my life. So who, who cares if I'm nice to him as he comes into church? You know, that kind of idea. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low, uh, condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. So don't think, well, I am too important to lower myself to the level of these people and try to fellowship with them and think that I'm like one of those lowly people. Paul says, if God's no respecter of persons, neither should you be. To condescend, it, it means to descend from the privileges of a superior rank. To descend from the privileges of a superior rank. So maybe you do have more of this world's wealth or a higher position as far as society is concerned. But when, it, when you look at this in the context of the body of Christ, so... Your money, your position, that doesn't make you any better or worse in the eyes of God. So don't factor that in. Don't, don't allow that to affect the way that you fellowship with those around you. Condescend to men of low estate. Say, hey, listen, you're saved, I'm saved, we're all one in Christ. Verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Somebody's done you wrong, then don't, get, don't think in your head, well, then I, then I deserve, he deserves to get one back. To, you know, to, if he hit me, I'm going to hit him back. He stole from me, I'm going to steal back. You end up doing that, you're going to end up very bitter. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. That's great advice. Guys, do things open and honest. Leave a paper trail. Right? If you're, if you're going to... If you're going to uh, get into a project with somebody and say, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to do that. If the project has to change, call them. Let everybody know, hey, sorry, here's what's happened. Things have had to change. If you just go doing things under the, I want to say under the table, but making it up as you go and then later on tell them what you did, man, why, why weren't you upfront and honest about it? Provide things honest. Each situation might require something different. Maybe just a receipt, maybe an explanation, whatever the case is. Be careful, not just that you do it right, but thus that you protect your testimony so that people see that you're doing it right. Not for the sake of self-glory, you understand, but so that you, they know that you're a trustworthy person. Verse 18, forgive me, I'm just going to finish this chapter here. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Uh, listen, I love the way Paul's worded this. As much as lieth in you, sometimes two personalities just don't mix. You need to know your limits. Know your measure of faith. Amen. There are some, the old saying is, fences make good neighbors. 
sometimes you need to observe the fence. Say, we, we've put a fence between us. That's fine. I love you from a distance. You, you stay over there. I'll stay here. We'll get along just fine as long as we don't spend a lot of time around each other. Now listen, it shouldn't be that way with everybody. But some people, maybe the personalities just don't work together. Know your limits. Verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. So you get angry and worked up instead of reacting to that, saying, well, oh, they did this, I'm going to get them back. Remember the scripture, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Don't try to take God's place. Let God do His job. That person did you wrong, let God be the one that punishes that person. How do you handle it? You, you bless. You bless. You pray for them. Right? Verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. I, what I say, you know, because of the modern day in which we live, go to McDonald's, get him a cheeseburger. Get, get him an extra value meal. Right? Fries and a, and a Coke. He says at the end of the verse, For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now that's an idiom. That's a figure of speech. This is a, a quote. Paul's quoting Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. It, but the end of that verse, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Not literally, mind you. Um, some people say, you know, when that, when that enemy goes to hell, then they have more fire dumped on them. They take it to be literal. I, I don't think this is a literal statement. I think it is an idiom. It's, it's just a figure of speech to say, you want to see this person punished. What sort of punishment will, can you pour on them? You punish them with kindness. You punish them with kindness. The coals of fire that get heaped on their head, you can't ignore. If somebody literally did pour coals of fire on your head, you know, took the bribe pit and dumped it on you, that would get their attention. That would burn them up. I mean, that, that would... They would know, whoa, what, what happened? If you want to startle them and get their attention and really prick their conscience and make your point, this is the best way to do it. Kill them with kindness. That's the old saying, right? Verse 21, great statement. Be not overcome of evil. So don't let evil get the best of you. Don't let evil harden your heart. Say, everybody's cheating me, doing me wrong. Don't let that make you get bitter. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So the worse they treat you, the better you treat them. That's the best way to overcome. All right, lots of general advice that can fit in pretty much every aspect of life. So I hope you take time to meditate on all of those things and, uh, and see how they can fit. I'm sure as, as early as tomorrow, as early, even tonight, you might be able to apply some of it. But uh, when you wake up tomorrow, give the end of that chapter a look and see if there are some things you can actively try to employ throughout your day. And pray and ask God, how can I contribute? What part can I supply in the body of Christ? All right, we're going to stop there. Thank you for a couple extra minutes. Let's have a word of prayer. If you guys have any questions about the lesson tonight, <clears throat> you're more than welcome to contact me personally, and I'll try my best to help you. Otherwise, we'll see you uh, Tuesday. Well, you see me Tuesday evening. Father, thank you this evening for your help and grace. Lord, I've tried to this evening teach and use the things that you've taught me, and I'm just trying to transfer that uh, to these 
people that have listened tonight. There's so much practical, applicable advice throughout this chapter, Lord. Show us individually what verses we need to apply immediately. I pray you'd help all of us to get some good rest tonight. Wake us up ready to be fervent in spirit and not to be slothful in business, but Lord, to go out there and put a smile on your face, even with our everyday jobs, Lord. We want to be serving the Lord. And we thank you for this privilege tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Lord willing, you'll see me Tuesday.